This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Hello and welcome to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Thank you for joining us and for following Working Like Dogs on Instagram and Facebook. And we're your hosts. My name is Marcy Davis and my co-host is my amazing service dog, Lovey. And we're thrilled to be with you to talk about our favorite subject, working dogs and working animals. And today we're going to be visiting with Blake Matre. He is the CEO and president of Dogs for the Deaf. And we're so excited to learn more about their program, how they train dogs to assist people who are deaf. So come right Sit, back after stay. this quick message. We'll be right back after a short pause. Blake Matre well, to the show. Well, exactly. You know that feeling when you go to clean the litter box and it's a complete disaster? Yeah, we've got you covered. Introducing World's Best Cat Litter Zero Mess, the advanced litter that gives you two times better clumping and more odor control with less litter. Zero Mess combines the concentrated power of corn with super-absorbent plant fibers. Translation, scoop once and you're done. Find it at a pet store near you and save $2. Visit www.saveonworldsbest.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Hello, Blake, and welcome. Hi, Marcy. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're so excited that you could be with us today. Well, I'm happy to be joining you. Well, first of all, give us a little history about Dogs for the Deaf. How did the program come into being? We actually are celebrating our 40th year of existence this year. Dogs for the Deaf was initially founded by a gentleman by the name of Roy Cabot, and Roy had worked in Hollywood as an animal trainer on some well-known features such as the Dr. Doolittle movie, and he actually had a hand in training the MGM lion that you'll, you see roaring at the beginning of MGM pictures. So he had done that work in Hollywood, and he got contacted by a woman's family from Minnesota because the woman had had a dog that had trained itself to basically be her hearing dog or assistance dog. And the dog would notify her she was deaf. The dog would notify her of the phone ringing or if the doorbell or there was a knock at the door, he would notify her uh, that that sound was occurring. After a while of having this great relationship, the dog passed away and the woman was you know, looking to find another dog to help her in the manner that her original dog had done. And when she went out looking 40 years ago, there were no organizations that trained dogs to do such work in the United States. So through their family, uh, she wound up getting in touch with Roy Cabot in Hollywood, who had been you know, training these animals for television and movies. And he agreed to go meet with her and then uh, travel to a guide dog school in Colorado to learn about training assistance dogs. And after he had spent some time in Colorado uh, with the guide dog facility, he came back to the West Coast, went up here to Oregon from California, and he bought property in the Applegate Valley, which is about maybe 20 miles from where our current facilities are. Uh, and he, he started Dogs for the Deaf. 
So that's how our organization came to, into being, and we got started out there in the Applegate Valley providing hearing dogs for people who are deaf and, uh, and who also who have hearing loss. So that's how we got started. Wow, that's an interesting and exciting way to get started. Wow, who would it, have thought it, it came from Hollywood? Yeah, that's awesome. I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it... it you know, when people back in those days needed someone to talk to for advice on how do you find or train a specific dog, apparently that's what came to mind, and, and that precipitated the phone call. Uh, wow. But we're happy that, that that series of events took place, and, and it, it led us to be able to have a now a 40-year history of providing assistance dogs to people who are deaf or have hearing loss. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I'll never look at the MGM lion again in the same way after that. Yeah, I, wow. I, I, I must... <laughs> say I'm the same. We have a few pictures of Roy training that lion in our conference room, and they're a big hit with visitors when we tell that story, then they get to to see the pictures of him actually doing it. That's awesome. Well, so tell us about the training and and how you guys place dogs with people. What type of dogs do you use? And tell us more about the program. Sure, I'd be happy to. One of the things that makes our program and our mission unique is the majority of our dogs that we put into training are dogs that we've rescued from uh, from shelters or from humane societies, and we've been doing that for 40 years now. So we travel up and down the western United States, really. We primarily started out initially doing the west coast, uh, but now we travel as far uh, east as Colorado on what we call our dog runs, looking for suitable dogs and shelters to put into training. And so the dogs that we do get our dogs that have come from that environment. We have staff members here at Dogs for the Deaf who are specially trained to go out to the shelters on these dog runs and screen potential dogs that we're seeing at the shelters and determine if those dogs are suitable for training. So there's a protocol that our trainers and our dog run employees go through when they visit the shelters or the humane societies. And it involves things like checking to see if the dog makes good eye contact when you initially approach the kennel, if the dog goes away from you, if it comes back and checks in. We check and see if the dog's startled by, by loud noises. So we do a quick screening at the shelter or humane society with each dog that we encounter. And if they Past those that initial screening, then what we'll often ask to do is we ask the shelter or humane society to let our our employee take the dog into a visiting room that they have, and and sometimes if they have an outdoor area for that, we'll we'll ask to take the dog outside. In some of the shelters that we're we have a great relationship with here close to our facilities, some of those shelters like uh, especially the Klamath Falls, Oregon. Humane Society, they'll let us take the dog outside onto uh, Walmart, actually. We go to Walmart, and we're able to walk the dogs a little bit just to see how they're going to interact with people in public. So we go through a rather rigorous or intensive screening process for dogs that we get from shelters or humane societies, and if they pass that screening, then we put them into our vehicle and bring them back here to, to start putting them into training. Wow. And is age, are you looking at dogs of a certain age when you're assessing them? Is that a big factor? It is. We generally look for dogs that are between about one to three years old. And that's just because once we put the time and and monetary investment into training those dogs for assistance dog work, if we put them through our program when they're that young, they've got quite a a long working lifespan ahead of them that they can be serving their client and and helping out with, with that person's condition or challenge. 
So that's why we look for dogs that are that young. Sometimes we have taken dogs that are four years old, and there have been a handful full of times where an absolutely exceptional dog that's maybe five or close to five has identified itself. We've taken those dogs, but those are, are rare. But generally, dogs between one to three years old is what we're looking for. And you take all kinds of breeds too, right? We do. Uh, really, any dog has the potential to enter into our program. There are a few exceptions. We generally try and stay away from dogs that are pit bulls, rottweilers, or crosses of them just because of the public perception. And we don't want to necessarily put an assistance dog vest on dogs of those breeds just because we don't want to have our clients have to get challenged or have to have difficulty getting into establishment because of the type of breed that their assistance dog is. We also, over the years, we've learned there are certain dogs that do well in our program and some that don't. We generally don't work with herding breed dogs. They have a real tough time. Every dog at our facility has an indoor and outdoor kennel, and then we've got outside exercise yards for them. But we found that the herding breeds don't do real well living in a kennel facility for about the four to six months it takes for us to train them. We also try to stay away from long dogs like dachshunds just because they are prone to having problems as they get older, spinal cord problems or back problems. So we we generally don't work with them. But outside of those categories, we'll consider most other dogs. And we've had a lot of mixed breed mutts go through our program and they've (laughs) they've done exceptionally well. They have. I love following you guys on Instagram, and so I see all the different types of dogs that have graduated, and it's so wonderful to see those adorable faces. So that's why I was wondering about that, because it does seem like you use a whole variety and a lot of smaller dogs. We do. We do. It's somewhat born out of, in general, hearing loss is a progressive condition for our clients that do have hearing loss. And so what happens is our clients tend to be a little bit older and when they're in that stage of their life, they generally don't have a, a really big expansive house uh, in some cases, in a lot of cases, or big backyards, and they may be living in an apartment. So generally, our hearing dog clients tend to be people who want either medium sized or smaller sized dogs. And there doesn't seem to be a lack of those dogs in shelters across the Western United States. And we're able to find those pretty readily, put them through training and get them to our clients. Yeah. Well, so what's the process after you get them back to to your facility in Oregon? What happens next and how long is your training process? All right. Great questions. We uh, we bring the dogs back here to our organization at Dogs for the Deaf and we, we put them, we have a, um, a 10 kennel facility called our quarantine facility. And the reason we have that is because we're taking dogs from shelters all over the Western United States. And so we don't really know what they've been exposed to, what they might have. I mean, we obviously don't take dogs that are, we can see that they're, they're sick or have some type of problem, but, you know, just common maladies. Uh, that might be common in a kennel environment, we have to make sure that the dogs that we're, we're bringing are isolated for about a two-week period in quarantine before we put them into our main training facility and expose all the dogs that we know are healthy that are in training to those new dogs. So dogs, when they first come here to Dogs for the Deaf, they go into our quarantine facility. They get a complete checkup by our staff, and then they get situated in their kennel. And then within a day or two, they go down to the veterinarian's office here with our staff and they get a full exam and any kind of condition that needs treating, they get full vet care. And in some cases during that two-week quarantine period, if a dog needs to be spayed or neutered, we get the dog spayed or neutered. 
And then usually by the time 14 days, two weeks is over, any condition that they may have is, is usually run its course through the system or through the veterinarian's care we've managed or taken care of. So after those 14 days, then we bring the dogs down into our main training kennel facility, introduce them to the other dogs, and not soon after that, they start training with our trainers. Wow, how exciting for them. It's like the dogs have won the lottery. That's so awesome. It is. I I often will tell people (laughs) that if you come out of the shelter, we put you on the Freedom Van because the Freedom Van is driving you back to dogs for the death. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Gosh, what a new experience for them going from the shelter into that environment where they're about to be so cared for and monitored and, and educated Wow. So how do you start training them? How many commands do you train your dogs to do? And and what type of alerts do they do? Tell us about that. Sure, I'd be happy to. We train the hearing dogs in accordance with ADI, Assistance Dogs International Standards. Um, And they're our accrediting organization. And they accredit a number of assistance dog programs, both in the United States and across the entire world. So what happens with our dogs is once they come down and and get into the actual training program, they get assigned to one of our assistance dog trainers. And we currently have four of them on staff. We have one apprentice who will be finishing and graduating probably uh, December timeframe. So one of our trainers or our one apprentice gets assigned the dog. And each of those trainers right now has about six to eight dogs at any one time on their string of dogs that they have to train. And the dog, when it enters training, you know, it's a gradual process. It, you know, it starts with basic obedience work, and then it gradually progresses up into sound work, which is the actual, you know, notifying clients that a sound is occurring. The environment that we have for the dogs to be doing their training in, all of our kennels in our training building are on the bottom floor, the indoor kennels, and then we have a vet room and, and some offices and storage and stuff like that on the bottom floor. But then on the upper floor of the building, we have four studio apartments. It actually looks like an apartment complex from the outside, the building does. And so each one of our our full-up certified trainers has an apartment on the second floor of the training building, and it's a fully functional working apartment. It's got a kitchen, uh, a bathroom, a small living room, and a bedroom, as well as a bathroom, if I didn't say that already. And so when the dogs actually start their training with our trainers from day one, they're being worked or they're being trained in in a home-like setting. So over the course of the time that they're here with, with us, we train them to work in a home because it looks like every day when they go to work with their trainer, they're in their apartment. And we even have in the apartments a portion of the wall cut out with a window put in there so that when the trainer is pretending to be sleeping in the bedroom or something like that as part of the training, they can see what the dog is doing in the living room when, the let's say, the alarm clock goes off that the that the dog has to notify the trainer that uh, that sound's occurring. So the dogs do all their sound work training in an actual apartment with their trainer. And in order to meet ADI standards, each hearing dog has to be trained to perform a minimum of three tasks. So there has to be three sound alerts that each dog does for their client. And what those sounds could be are anything from an oven timer going off on the stove. Uh, It could be a telephone ringing. It could be a knock at the door. It could be a doorbell. Uh, It could be a smoke detector going off. It could be a larger smoke alarm going off like in an office setting. And then we actually have trained dogs over our 40 years to alert clients to an infant crying. We've had some clients that have had infants, and so we have a crib in one of our apartments 
with a doll with a tape recorder, old school technology, but it still works. We've got a tape recorder in that doll and it emanates a crying sound. And we've actually over the years trained a few hearing dogs to alert mothers to an infant crying. Oh, Those are some of the sounds awesome. that the dogs get trained to do. Yeah, it is. We're really happy to be able to provide that help to those young mothers. We don't get that request often, but when we do, we're really happy to provide a dog that can do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, all of these things that you listed, I mean, they're just, and people take that so for granted, but wow, how that empowers someone when you give them the ability to do that. That's just, it's amazing. Well, we are going to take a quick break and hear some important messages from our sponsors, but we're going to come back and keep visiting with Blake because we have a whole lot of other questions to ask him about dogs for the deaf. So come right back after these quick messages. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. They called it elephant skin. It was rough, wrinkly, like a Brillo pad. His hair was falling out in clumps. Petey stopped eating and all his hair fell out. Our golden retriever, Sundance, scratched incessantly. There was hair all over. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. 859-428-1000. The omega-3 fatty acids. Flaxseed, zinc, alfalfa. The digestive enzymes that are cooked out of regular dog food. Dynavite is nutrition. Within two weeks, the shedding slowed down to almost none. The scratching went away after a few days and... Sundance's coat was starting to get shiny and glossy. It's a 180 turnaround. His skin has cleared up. He is not in pain. If your dog has shedding, dry skin, excessive scratching due to Dynavite. 859-428-1000. Dynavite for life. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Hi, I'm Dana Humphrey, the founder of Whitegate PR. We have been specializing in PR and marketing in the pet industry for over 10 years. If you have a pet product or service you would like to promote, give us a call. We can help create awareness for your brand on TV, radio, magazines, newspapers, and blogs. Feel free to reach me directly at 619-414-9307 or learn more on our website at whitegatepr.com or follow us on Facebook. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. And we're visiting today with the Executive Director of Dogs for the Deaf, our friend Blake Matre. And we're so excited to be learning about Dogs for the Deaf. And Blake, it was so awesome when you were telling us about your training program and how you get these dogs from shelters throughout the Western United States. And so as we were talking before the break, you were telling us about some of the sound work that you do. And I was just wondering, how long is it when you train the dog before they're actually placed with someone? That's a great question. Generally, it runs between four to six months from the time that the dog starts training, gets introduced to its trainer, to the time the dog tests and and graduates from our program. Uh, In general, it's about four to six months. Uh, It depends on the dog, their ability to learn how quickly they pick up the basic obedience and then the sound work that follows. But we found over the years that, you know, most of our, our graduates get to that point between four and six months. 
Wow, that is so fast. You know, we're so used to hearing how long it takes to get assistance dogs trained. So that's really surprising. Do you train them to do any kind of retrieving or anything else, or is it focused on the sound work? It's focused on the sound work because that's the assistance dog work that they're going to be doing for their client once they go out. So we focus on them alerting to sounds. We don't train them to do any type of, we get asked a lot, like, can you train your dogs to uh, protect me in, in a public setting or something? And we don't train those additional things in the dogs. You know, obviously the dogs may do that on their own when they're out with their client and they've built up a relationship over the years, but we don't specifically add on any additional things other than the, the sound work that makes them the assistance dog that they are. Got it. Okay, that sounds great. Well, and so tell us, how do you work with clients? How do people apply um, for one of your dogs? It's a process, obviously, through our website, people could get an application to apply for one of our dogs. The way that works is uh, initially the person fills out the application that they've downloaded or, or filled out through our website. We also, if somebody wanted, could mail them a paper application. They could fill by hand and mail back to us. But when that initial application comes to us, we ask for a $50 application fee. And then the client basically gives us information about themselves. If it's a hearing dog that the client is applying for, they have to provide some information from their doctor. All this is kept strictly confidential, and we don't share it outside of our organization. But obviously, if we're going to provide a hearing assistance dog to someone, we got to know that they actually have a legitimate condition. So once that application comes to us, we evaluate it with an, like an initial screening. And then if it looks like the person qualifies and has met all of our initial requirements, then what we do is we send someone either from our staff or one of our volunteers. We've got a nationwide network of uh, Dogs for the Deaf ambassadors is what we call them, and they are great volunteers that assist us in such things as doing these in-person interviews. So once the initial application gets approved, we send out either a staff member or an ambassador to the respective client's home. They sit down with them and ask them a number of questions, and then they also videotape the client's home or home environment and the outside exterior and, and basically gather a bunch of information about the client and their home and where the dog would be working if it were to go to this potential client. And then we bring that back to our organization and our training department. They've got a panel of people that review what they see in, in that as a result of that interview. And once all that looks like it's going to be a, a good working environment and a, uh, a benefit to that client to have a dog there, the client gets approved and then they go on to our waiting list. And right now, uh, for a hearing dog, our waiting list is about a year. It takes about a year from the time you, you initially send us an application to the time we have a trainer coming to you with a dog to be placed with you. That time frame is about a year's time. That's, Just that's fast. We, yeah, it is. We're working on making it even shorter, but for right now, that's what we've got. Mm-hmm. And when someone applies and, and goes through that process and gets accepted, do you take the dog to them, to their home for the training, or do they come to your facility? We do. We go to them. That used to be the way it was done, but efficiencies trying to be increased. A lot of organizations have gone to, they, they have a staff member or two that specifically they go and place the dog with the client or they have a volunteer network that takes the graduate dog to the clients and helps them with placement in the home. Here at our organization, we still work with the model of the trainer that trained the assistance dog at our organization is the one that travels to the client's home and places the dog. 
with the client. We're able to still do that right now. The trainers that we have really love that, that they get to see the end result of their work with that dog. They get to go and place it with the client. So that's a huge morale booster among our training Mm -hmm. staff here that they get to do that. It's also a good (laughs) recruiting tool for us as an organization because, you know, in some organizations, you can't get that if you're a trainer. You can't get that result of connecting with the person your dog that you've trained is going to help. So it's a great benefit to our trainers that we're still able to do that. Oh, yeah, that's such a perk for everybody. And for the individual that's getting their dog to get to meet the person that trained the dog, that's so exciting for them, too. Yeah, I that's agree. beautiful. I agree. We, we think it instills some confidence in the person that's becoming our client that they know the trainer that's coming to them is the one who trained the dog and knows it well. So, you know, any concern they might have about it not going well or anything like that hopefully is allayed by the fact that the person who knows this dog the best is the one that's coming with it. Yeah. And so how long does the trainer stay with the person in the training? Are they there a few days, a week? How does that how does that work? And follow up after they leave? Yeah. In general, it takes three to five days for a dog to be placed with a client. Some of our dogs are what we call home hearing dogs. And those dogs are trained to just work inside the person's home. And they don't necessarily go out into public or have public access rights as assistance dogs. So if a trainer was placing a hearing assistance dog that's a home hearing dog, it takes three days. But if the dog is going to have full up ADA access with the client to go into restaurants, stores, and so forth, then it takes five days for the trainer to place the dog with the client because the trainer, our trainer will take the client to the veterinarian's office, to a store, to some of these public places to get the client accustomed to handling the dog in public so that when they go out for the first time to do that, they're not just doing it on their own. They'll go with one of our trainers during that placement week, we call it, of five days. So about three to five days is the answer. That is so wonderful. It's You guys are so thorough. I love that, <laughs> that you're thinking of all those details because those well, are all we wanna, things that... It is. Yeah. It, you know, we've refined this process over years, but we want to make sure we're setting our clients and our dogs up for success once they're together. And you mentioned follow-up in your previous question. We do do that. The trainer that places the dog with the client gives their email address to the client. We have an office here called Client Services, and we tell people that we're maintaining a commitment to you, you and your dog, your team, for the lifetime that you're together. So we tell our clients, if you have questions, call us, email us, and you know, time permitting, we'll get back to you as soon as we can. But we don't just place the dog and go, best of luck, and, and drive away. We're for the whole time that they're together, and we support them and, you know, as, with as much help as they need. We do do visits that are follow-up visits that are required by ADI, but we answer phone calls and questions and emails whenever they come in from our clients. That's excellent, Blake. That's so wonderful that you really offer that full comprehensive services to them because you're right. You want them to succeed. And it's scary when you get your first dog, especially if you haven't had that kind of experience with that level of of a trained dog. It's a very intense and daunting relationship that you're trying to cultivate, especially when they've been with a trainer that they adore, you know, and then they come to you as a new person. That's hard. Right, it is. The dogs learn, though, that they've been trained to do work, and they've been trained to, to identify sounds, and we found that I, a lot of times I get questions about, well, how do your trainers let those dogs go after they spent so much time with them? And the answer that they always give, and, and I see it firsthand, is they say, I know that my dog that I just trained and graduated is going to be helping somebody who really needs yeah. their help. 
and yeah. they say, I'm okay with letting that dog go because I know it's going to be making someone's life better by me letting it go. So, of course, I want to be able to do that. And then they also add that, and besides, I have three dogs or four dogs at home already, and I just can't <laughs> pick another one. But right. the, the former is what they're what really drives them is they know they're yeah. helping somebody who really needs the help from that dog in the long run. And so it's not difficult for them to, to let those dogs go. Yeah. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. There are people that can do that and let them go. That's what I say, because it not only helps a person, it can change their life in ways that they've never imagined. So I just, I commend all the puppy raisers and volunteers and trainers that can do that because what an incredible gift they're giving so many people. Well, so tell us, Tell us about, do you do any other kinds of dogs that do other things? We do. We have started here in the last couple of years to kind of diversify the offerings that we have as assistance dogs. You know, there's been some advances in technology, such as cochlear implants, looping that goes along with cochlear implants. There's been a lot of technological advances that have helped people with hearing loss or deafness. So we recognize with these great innovations coming online to help people that would be our clients, there's a bit of a need in our organization to diversify a little bit and perhaps offer some other kinds of assistance dogs so that we could serve more people, but then also be able to make sure that our organization has longevity for many years to come. So we started producing uh, what we call uh, program assistance dogs about maybe four or five years ago. And those dogs in the assistance dog industry are often called facility dogs. They help out in doctor's offices, special education classrooms, group homes, courtroom settings. So we've placed uh, probably about six or seven of those dogs in about the last four years or so. We just recently placed one in a special education classroom, Eagle Point, and then uh, we placed a dog in Medford last spring at the Child Advocacy Center. And that dog helps children who are victims going through the legal process. And I can only imagine how stressful that has to be for children. But that dog that we have down there at the Child Advocacy Center, he provides a confidence-boosting effort, the ability to calm and relax those children as they're they're going through the, the process. And what we like about the program dogs is that they don't necessarily, like a lot of assistance dogs that are one client-specific, we know that when the program assistance dogs go out, they're helping most likely a classroom full of students or a group home. It's a group of adults day in and day out as opposed to just one particular client. So we're happy to offer those dogs now to people. And then we've also started in the last year producing autism assistance dogs. We just placed our third dog a month and a half ago locally here in the Rogue Valley. Uh, And it's worth mentioning, we place our hearing dogs nationwide, and we've been doing that for almost the the entire 40 years now. Our program assistance dogs also get placed nationally, but our autism assistance dogs for the time being, we're only placing in Southern Oregon as we kind of get our program to get its feet underneath it and uh, get our processes all ironed out. And eventually, we'll take it Oregon-wide, then West Coast-wide, and then eventually nationwide. That's great. Well, I'm so glad to hear that you guys are expanding. That's exciting. And I know it. it is. there's so many things that dogs can do for us. I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg. But that's so great that you're doing those other types of facility dogs and courthouse dogs. I mean, that's wonderful because we've had some of those um, programs on our show and we just love hearing the work that they're doing. And it's fascinating how they're using dogs to impact all of those different situations. 
situations that humans find ourselves in where we certainly can use the support of our canine partners. That's great. Well, I have to ask you really, really quickly, because I know our time is running out, but I was wondering two things. One is for those other types of dogs, for the facility dogs and autism dogs, do you use the same shelter dogs or do you use other dogs for those jobs? We have been able to use rescue dogs for most of our program uh, assistance dogs that have gone out. One of the things that we benefit from here in Oregon is guide dogs for the blind in Boring, Oregon, and then also the guide dogs for the blind in California. We have a great working relationship with them, and what will happen at times is a dog that's been a bred dog, such as a Labrador Retriever or a Golden Retriever in their programs that doesn't graduate for one reason or another. If the reason that they don't graduate is something that we potentially could work with, they have channeled those dogs to us to put into our program in the hopes that they could eventually go out and be an assistance dog for someone that just that they wouldn't be a guide dog. And so we benefited from that great relationship and dogs have gone out as program assistance dogs or as autism assistance dogs from dogs for the deaf that initially started with guide dogs. So I can't can't say that 100% of our dogs are rescued. The majority of them are. At some point in the future here, if we get our autism assistance dog program going nationwide, if we were not able to find enough dogs in shelters to make that work, we are considering having a small-scale breeding program in order to make those autism assistance dogs available to meet the need we anticipate we're going we're gonna to get here once we take the program nationwide. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, I love the partnership that you have and taking dogs and helping them to find other jobs that if it didn't work out for them to be guide dogs, there's so many other possibilities. So I love that. That's great. Well, and yeah, that's make it's so smart. It makes so much sense to partner and and really leverage your resources for each other and for your clients. Well, and one other thing I want to ask you is how is public access for your clients? I know you said some dogs stay at home and work just in home, but what about your dogs? Because people have the idea that assistance dogs are labs or golden retrievers. So how is it for public access for your clients? Well, the dogs, regardless of their size, are still guaranteed that public access if they are, in fact, assistance dogs that are, you know, graduates from our organization or from any training program, they're guaranteed the access to public venues with their client while they're performing that work. And that, that access is guaranteed by the Americans with Disabilities Act. Yeah. Okay, good. So then you're not having, because I just wondered, you know, with fake service dogs, you know, and people fake vesting, I just wondered if that was ever an issue for your clients, but it sounds like it's not. That's great. Well, in general, it's not. We occasionally have clients that have had some difficulty with a particular establishment or a particular area, and we have assisted them by contacting that person or providing some information to the client to help them gain that access that they they legally already have but need some help in informing the venue that they are entitled to because of the law. So all of our dogs go with a identification card with their picture on it and the client's name so that that could be presented. And most often that does it. There is no national registry or anything like that, like I'm sure you're aware of, but that Mm -hmm. ID card with our logo and stuff on it usually is enough to help our clients if there's any questions raised. Yeah. Yeah. Lovey and I don't leave the house without our ID. (laughs) Okay. No, that's good practice. 
<laughs> in fact, I keep it on her. So it's actually on her little backpack so that I know I won't oh, ever forget it. Oh, that's actually a great it. idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, Blake, I can't thank you enough for being with us today. It's been such a delight to visit with you and to learn about Dogs for the Deaf. And I hope that you'll come back and tell us more about the wonderful work that you're doing and, and stay in touch with us. I definitely will. I enjoyed talking with you here today, and uh, I'll be all too happy to come back and talk again. Perhaps maybe when we take our autism program nationwide, it'd be a good yes, time for that. yes, that'd be perfect. Well, and before you go, tell our listeners how they can get more information about Dogs for the Deaf. How can they reach you guys? Sure. Our website is dogsforthedeaf.org, www.dogsforthedeaf.org. And all the information, most all the information I shared with you today is available. It's on some portion of our website. We just recently upgraded and launched a new version of our site in December. So it's almost still brand spanking new. There's all kinds of information on there. We are also on Facebook uh, as Dogs for the Deaf, Twitter, and Instagram. So through all four of those electronic mediums, you can find out more about our organization and see the work that we do every day. Excellent. And we love to follow you on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yep, we follow you guys All right, well, thanks for that. (laughs) So thank you so much, Blake. We really appreciate it. You're welcome, Marcy. Thanks very much for having me on. Well, it's our pleasure. And thank you, our listeners, for being with us. We'd love for you to join us, and we'd love to hear from you. So please keep your emails coming, and you know you can reach us at Marcy, M-A-R-C-I-E, at Pet Life Radio. And you can also follow Working Like Dogs on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And we're having so much fun connecting with you on Instagram. So please, we'd love to see your photos of your working dog and the incredible work that they're doing with you every day. So thanks so much for being with us and take good care. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.